HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm the chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant, and this is The Line. It's 11 a.m., and we are coming to you live from the studio. We've got Jake Novick Finder here with us. He is the chef and owner of Grist Mill, located in Park Slope. Uh, previously, he was part of the Union Square Hospitality Group. He has worked at Chantrell. He worked in Boston. And he is going to tell us all about how he ended up having his own restaurant uh, in Park Slope. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eli. Excited to be here. So let's start off. Why is the restaurant called Gristmill? How did you come up with that name? So we, uh, we were trying to find a name that really kind of uh, exemplified what we were trying to do with Farm to Table. Uh, we didn't want kind of the, for lack of a better word, marketing BS of Farm to Table where you just buy tomatoes twice a year from New Jersey. Uh, we wanted to say that this restaurant is about uh, merging the Hudson Valley, merging small farms, small purveyors with uh, a small community restaurant, um, with wood-fired food, with tasting fire. Uh, so the idea was to talk about how important uh, fresh milled flour is to me. Um, my background as a pastry chef and bread baker, there's nothing more important than flour. And uh, because of that, I felt like if I kind of show the example of how important fresh milled flour is from the bottom of my dough, then it kind of becomes this, of course, everything else I get from flour up to the top of the pizza to every plate I do is fresh milled, uh, fresh farm. And so grist mill is where a grain is milled into flour. And we thought, hey, what a perfect example of what we're doing. So tell me about flour. What kind of flour do you use at the restaurant? How do you, as a uh, someone with a background in baking and pastry, now you oversee all the savory and the, the sweet side of things. How do you make those decisions about flour sourcing, um, flour combinations for your pizza dough? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, everything at the restaurant is about sourcing. I, I try to take 
you know, sourcing food just as seriously as cooking food. Uh, and I probably spend almost as much time sourcing as I do cooking. Um, it's something I kind of fell in love with working in Boston, getting to do a lot of the sourcing and receiving and ordering for the restaurant. And at uh, Gristmill, um, you know, I'm overseeing savory and sweet, and I'm trying to work grain into savory and sweet. Uh, we work with, right now, we're working with four small grain farms, and that's all of our grain products from oats to flowers. Uh, the main flower farm we work with is one I've been working with for many years now in the Berkshires called Four Star Farms, uh, one of my favorite flower farms uh, in the country. Uh, and they mill to order. So they text me on Mondays, uh, mill Monday night and Tuesday, and deliver it to me on Thursday, which is quite fresh. For those listening that uh, are not really familiar with the process, uh, can you just speak a little bit about – so people know that AP flour, it's white. It ends up in a bag on the shelf. I think beyond that, people that don't do a lot of baking, that, that haven't really made anything besides – cupcakes or maybe a cake here and there, they're not really understanding the entire process. Can you uh, give us a little bit of background about what the milling process is and how it, how does it start in the field and then what happens when it ends up at your restaurant at a place like Four Star? Absolutely. So with Four Star, with Wild Hive, with all the grain farms we work with, you know, uh, they grow or buy grains that are grown in the field. Uh, we work with a lot of different grains. I think I have maybe 13 different grains on my in my office where I keep them uh, temperature controlled. Um, and, you know, it's everything from triticale, which is one of my favorite grains, a splice between whole wheat and rye. Um, to more whole wheat grains, more rye grains. So all these grains are grown in the in the field. Some are uh, cover crops, meaning they're grown to um, kind of uh, add nutrients to the soil. Um, and then when the grains are cut down, uh, when they're taken, and I actually unfortunately have not been able to visit Four Star Farms yet. Can't wait to go. Uh, but uh, hard to leave the restaurant. Uh, but the the grains are are, are taken in. Um, once, once they've been grown and uh, they are milled uh, in large grain mills, also called a grist mill, um, where they're broken down into flour. Uh, when they're broken down into flour, there's lots of different parts of the grain. Um, there's kind of on a you know, bigger picture level, there's fibers, there's nutrients, there's uh, kind of the endosperm part of the grain where you're going to have all these particles that you wouldn't see in white flour, uh, partly because white flour is bleached and we don't work with any bleach products, partly because all of the germ is sifted out. When you sift all the germ out and you have no germ flour, uh, you have a product that's potentially a little more shelf-stable and a little easier to work with, uh, a little more all-purpose, if you will, uh, but it also lacks a lot of the nutrients, a lot of flavor. Uh, so we buy kind of a mixture of different flours. We buy one flour that's no germ for a very specific purpose from Champlain Valley Milling. Um, but all the four-star grains, we have two choices, bolted, which is where they sift out some of the germ, um, or whole grain, where they leave all of the germ in, and you get a much coarser flour. It's a little less even to work with and a little trickier when you're working with fresh milled flour. Um, but basically, when they're, when they're milling the grain, um, they're breaking it down to different coarse levels, and then they're sifting it to different levels. So you get different amounts of the nutrients and fiber in there. Uh, so we work with flours that are uh, both, and we mix a lot in-house. So for my pizza dough, for example, I'm using majority is spelt flour from Four Star Farms. Uh, I'm also using warthog, which is um, another kind of bread, whole wheat grain flour from Four Star Farms. And both of those are bolted, meaning uh, some of the germ has been removed, but not all. Uh, and then I use high extraction from farmer ground flour, which is a half wheat, half white uh, extraction flour. That's the combination of mixing uh, each of our doughs, each of our breads. They're all our custom blends that we do in-house. You just dropped a lot of knowledge on us. And that w that's amazing that you have this uh, breadth of uh, 
just deep understanding of where you're sourcing from to, to draw on, uh, to make your decisions for the menu. How much of your knowledge about this uh, is self-taught and how much of it is informed by the years that you spent in other restaurants? Do you, did you, did you, do you feel like you got a master's when you were doing pastry or are you still every single weekday reading and learning about these grains and experimenting how to work with them? I would say it's both. Uh, I got a really strong master's or a fundamental lesson uh, in every kitchen that I've ever worked in. Um, and, you know, some more than others, of course. Uh, the bread bakery I worked at, I learned a lot about dough development. Uh, friends that kind of specialize in dough, we still stay in touch and, and text random facts. But everywhere I worked, we used, you know, anywhere from gold medal to King Arthur to any of the more uh, store-bought uh, flowers. Uh, even the best restaurants in the city that I worked at, you know, I was working at, you know, I started in kitchens when I was pretty young. So I started in kitchens, uh, let's see, 14 years ago. And, you know, even eight years ago, no one was caring about where flour came from, or at least they weren't focusing on it. It was other things to focus on. So flour was all white flour. Uh, so this whole fresh mill flour, that's something that I'm constantly experimenting, constantly playing with. It's totally new. I mean, everywhere I worked, we use instant yeast. I won't touch and see sick grist mill. Uh, everything is sourdough starter. You know, maybe one day we'll use some kind of uh, other yeast, but right now everything comes from my sourdough starter named Daisy. And Daisy's the person who taught me the most about bread at Clear Flower Bakery. Oh, it's named after someone's real. Oh, yeah. Specific. Very cool. specific. So Daisy's a close friend. She was the head baker at Clear Flower. Uh, she's no longer there, but Clear Flower is where I spent a year learning a ton about dough and bread development. And Daisy and I stay in touch, and I'm still trying to convince her to move to Brooklyn. It's amazing that when uh, we're close in age and when we were kids, you'd go out to dinner and you'd get a bread basket on the table, but it was crap. It was a total afterthought. It was like that French bread that's like air in the middle and that it has a hard crust on the outside, right? You get a couple slices, there's some cold butter. Now you see bread being centerpieces of menus. Uh, obviously, pizza is a very huge thing Uh in Brooklyn, but all over the United States, uh, pizza has had a resurgence in the last seven years as being something that people are taking very seriously, not only as just like a slice joint, but uh, being a focal point of the menu. And now you hear tons of people talking about uh, bread formulation and, and making their own starters. Um, how did it come about, do you think, that there was such a large change? You just mentioned that even a couple years ago, no one had ever heard of uh you know, Sir Galahad, like there, there were all these great flowers that are coming into play and you're sourcing 13 varieties right now. When, when do you think this change happened and why did it come about that people are paying such close attention to bread now? So I think that it kind of started with a renaissance, maybe, you know, seven to 10 years ago of bread being important again. Uh, I almost want to say that like France, that's considered kind of our leader in bread, at least on a global perspective, uh, went into the wrong direction. They started to do mass produced bread and they started to just send out frozen dough all over the city and they did it really well. I mean, if you go to Paris and you get a baguette, chances are it's going to taste the same as the one at the next corner because it's made in the same factory. But for a frozen dough, it's really impressive. It's still going to blow people away. I think uh, in the U.S., they started in the wrong direction of having frozen dough that didn't taste good, where everyone thought, oh, man, Americans can't make bread. Uh, but it opened up an opportunity for a renaissance, uh, Bread Bakers Guild of America and different associations to have bakeries across the country. If you look at some of the top baguette lists in the United States, you'll see some amazing bread bakers that have said, wait a minute, there's something really fucking cool we can do with flour, water, yeast, and salt. 
Um, and I, I think that that kind of movement pushed people into, okay, well, we can't charge $12 a loaf quite yet for bread, so we still have to use white flour or cheap flour. Um, but then as people started to go, oh, wow, yeah, I'll pay 8 bucks for that loaf. Like, that's a real delicious piece of bread. I had no idea something with just flour, water, yeast, and salt could mix together and taste so good. Uh, that people started to go, wait a minute, what happens if we keep the germ in? What happens if we take a few steps back and, and stop bleaching flour? Uh, you know, what happens if we go back to everything being truly farm to table, even our flour? Uh, and I want to say in the last, you know, five years, a lot of the credit goes to Dan Barber, uh, who has really kind of spoken up and is such a figure in the food movement to say, wait a minute, if we grow grain, we can control every step of it in-house. And the yeast is in the air. So if we're just kind of pulling wild yeast from the environment and mixing it with just this grain that grows, I mean, to me, there's nothing more beautiful than something so incredibly simple. There's nothing more beautiful than having just the fewest possible ingredients but knowing that every time you make it, the flavor is going to be slightly different. And every time that you work with it slightly different, it's the flavor. So it, it takes away the, I can mix 15,000 ingredients together and make a you know really sexy dish for you. And goes back to the challenge of all of it being technique. You know, if you have just three ingredients, it's all technique. And I think that's really what pushes people who are bored of old school cooking with too many ingredients to say, I want to make the most basic thing, but I want to blow your mind. I want to talk about 12-year-old Jake. <laughs> when I was 12, I think that I was maybe still like playing with action figures. I was definitely not focusing on a career choice. You were about to start working in a kitchen at 12 years old. Uh, what kitchen was it? And I also want to know, was there a negotiation process with your parents about doing this? And uh, if yes, how did you convince them? And if not, why did your parents think that this was going to be a good idea for you to start sort of an externship at 12 years old at a restaurant? <laughs> it seems a bit insane to let a kid loose in a, in a New York City kitchen. Well, I think, you know, after my parents, you know, raised me and see, saw me go through the last, you know, 14 years of kitchens, their decision would be way different if they had another kid decide to do this now. Uh, so, yeah, they definitely were a little crazy 14 years ago. Uh, there was actually no negotiation that I remember. They were incredibly supportive. Uh, a close family friend um, who became kind of a mentor of mine, he was taught young kids and really was inspired by kids with passion. And he said to me at 12 years old, he was like, what do you want to do in life? And I took that question very seriously, maybe too seriously. And I said, I want to cook. And he was like, well, what do you cook? And I was like, I make fruit salad. I make a Duncan Hines, like brownie mix. Like I'm totally mastered every cake mix there is out there. I know it. Three eggs, third cup oil. Got it done. The third aisle of the grocery the store. Third you aisle. mastered it completely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we used to stock our basement. And uh, so, you know, I, I said to him, I really want to learn to cook. And he took that very seriously. And he called his favorite restaurant in the city that he goes to every year on his birthday, although it's no longer around, uh, Chanterelle in Tribeca. And he called a few different places. And he uh, got in touch with the pastry chef of Chanterelle, Kate Zuckerman. And he said, you know, I have this young guy who wants to, I, I actually don't even know what he said, but, you know, I, I kind of imagine it to be a little bit crazy and say, I have a 12-year-old who wants to come work for you. What do you think? And she, said, you're, she said, you're insane. <laughs> exactly. She said, you're insane. But shockingly, Chanterelle's done this for a few people. I've recently learned, I don't know if I was the youngest, but I've recently ran into people who were like, I started Chanterelle when I was 15. And I'm like, wait, is this a thing? Do they breed, you know, children there? <laughs> 
they love that free labor. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. So you started working there when you were twelve. Uh, were you working on the weekends? Uh, yeah. What, so I what did they have you do? So I'd work every Saturday from around seven a.m. to around three p.m. Uh, basically, we lived up in in the Hudson Valley because when we were, I was about eight, we moved up to Hudson Valley from Brooklyn. And uh, my dad still to this day commutes down for his uh, his uh, law office in the city. And now he can commute like one day a week, which is nice. But back then he was, you know, back and forth a lot. And so I would actually take the train down. My mom would drop me off on the train, take the train down, uh, and he'd pick me up on the other end. And uh, on Friday nights, crash on his couch, and then Saturday morning, right into Chanterelle's kitchen. And, you know, to this day, I think back about what they had me do. And I think, holy shit, I'd never let a 12-year-old do that in my kitchen. Using knives, uh, I being mean, near boiling water. I don't remember them it? stopping me from doing anything. I mean, Kate, Kate might listen to the show and go, wait, what are you talking about? Jake never touched a knife. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I remember I did a lot of chocolate work, which really blew me away there. I did a lot of kind of, you know, basic chocolate work, um, scooping ganache and robing ganache. Um, I did a lot of kind of pastry prep, if you will. Uh, you know, back then I thought I was like, oh my God, I'm doing everything. This is amazing. Now I'm like, okay, I was the pastry prep cook. Got it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, usually they had interns there too. So it'd be like me and an intern teamed up, you know, chopping strawberries, counting out petty fours, making petty fours. Um, it was a lot of it was a lot of uh, counting to 120. So I assume that was how many covers we did. Although it's been a long time. So you you were really thrown into the mix, and they were allowing you to do these repetitive things where you're building sort of this skills repertoire, right? You're in there once a week, but you're learning how to be part of a kitchen and you are figuring out all the aspects, the hierarchy, the storage protocol, the technique that goes into this work. Did you immediately after Chantrell say pastry is for me? What was the next step after Chantreau? I think you kind of like, you know, nailed it right there. I mean, for me, I remember saying, I don't know if I want to do pastry or savory, but I'm more comfortable baking at home with my mom than, than cooking with my dad at, at 12. So, because my dad would do some savory cooking, my mom would do baking more so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I kind of was just like, yeah, let me try it. And I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with, I, I guess, everything. I guess it's kind of like when you're learning a language from a young age, how much easier it is. It's kind of like learning the consistency, learning the, the language of the kitchen, uh, as you just kind of put it, with the consistency factor. I mean, uh, I wasn't bored by counting out 120 little white doilies to fill my petty fours with uh, every single Saturday morning. Like, that's how I wanted to spend my Saturday morning. Uh, I, I totally get that I was an abnormal 12-year-old. Uh, but I, I fully enjoyed kind of like, all right, pat the foie, one, two, three, you know, over and over. And, okay, and the next color, pat the foie, let's start again. Um, and, and really kind of organizing it. And I just took, you know, a lot of pride in terms of, like, putting it into the fish box, labeling it, putting it upstairs on the line. And I still remember, like, the special feeling of putting away a finished product, especially bringing it upstairs to the FOH and, like, getting to hand it off as, wow, this is going to be in the dining room tonight. People are paying money for something I just touched. Like, it was kind of that weird moment. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, I, I really left there going – I left there going, oh, my God, I love chocolate. And uh, I was crazy enough at uh, – I was there for about a year off and on. Like sometimes it was every other Saturday. Sometimes I'd come in. Like I'd have a week off school and I'd ask if I can come down for a couple days. Um, but uh, – and Kate generously invited me to a couple shows she went to, like the chocolate show, and let me go up on stage with her and kind of talk to the, the um, you know, the whole group. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just I fell in love with chocolate work, and from there I thought, oh my god, I'm going to open a, a small chocolate company, and I didn't really know what that meant, but I was a I guess a 
ambitious 13 year old and thought well, I'll just sell truffles to everyone I know and you know hopefully it works out and uh, you know before I knew it I had a few stores in the Hudson Valley that wanted to carry my product every week and I used to just make chocolates out of my home and uh, sell this them. This is in Rhinebeck? This is in Rhinebeck, yeah. You're making the truffles in your, in your mom's house. Yep, okay. exactly. So I used to make my mom even very generously. We had a part of the kitchen with like a washer dryer, and she had it relocated to the basement because she designed the house. And uh, we put a countertop in, just like a piece of plywood. And I you know, would have uh, uh, you know, chocolate work there. I remember like saving up every dollar I could until I could buy a fridge at Best Buy and bought the cheapest fridge they had and threw it in the basement and made sure a half sheet tray fit in it. And that was it. I just made chocolate pretty much every single day after school. I want to hear more about your family dynamic. Uh, your mother is now a farmer. Yeah. She was an attorney. Yeah. Your father's an attorney. Yeah. Did your siblings think that it was a little bit odd that their brother was <laughs> a, you know, a professional chocolatier at 13 years uh, old? Were you getting like teased in any way by your your family or did they think that it was Cute, or did they see this as a real passion that they uh, fully embraced your decisions? I would say all of the above. <laughs> so I have uh, two brothers. My older brother is about a little over nine years older than me. Uh, so by the time we were living up there, he was in college. Um, but he was in college at Vassar, so he was close by. And so he'd stop by. Uh, I th- I, if I remember correctly, he lovingly called my truffles duty balls. Um, which, you know, seemed about right for uh, a brother who was, I guess at that time, about 22, graduating college. And, uh, yeah, so he, you know, but, uh, you know, both my brothers were incredibly supportive. I remember when my older brother was, like, getting... he was getting hit on at a bar, like maybe when he was like 24 in New York. And turns out the one he's getting hit on uh, is the purchasing manager for David Burke's new shop that was opening up. So he gave her my card, and next thing I know, I'm getting a call that David Burke's shop wants to carry my cho- chocolates in New York. Uh, long story short, apparently I called for her a week later, and she had been let go. So maybe the flirting at bars wasn't the best way to bring uh, new customers in. Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, and I actually went to the shop and unfortunately saw uh, a lot of expired products on the shelf. So I was like, all right, this this isn't right right now. But, um, you know, I, I definitely saw that. I was like, wow. So my brother's even, you know, when he's getting flirted out by bars, he's still supporting my endeavor. So that was very supportive. And my younger brother, who's five years younger than me, uh, he, he definitely was always around. I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm trying to remember back, I'm sure he uh, teased me or just thought the term duty balls was too funny to resist. Uh, but uh, they, were, they were always extremely supportive. And my younger brother even helped a lot. But put I think put him I, to work. Yeah, exactly. He definitely helped me work. And to this day, he helps uh, at Grismo whenever he's in town. Oh, cool. Uh, both my brothers help a lot, actually, with Gristle. My older brother runs our music selection um, and constantly keeps it up to date and checks in and comes by the restaurant and shows love and support. And my younger brother goes to school in L.A. Every time he's in town, he's working at the restaurant, whether he knows it or not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, back then I got, a lot of, I got a lot of support from family and friends and everybody just kind of coming together to, to tell people about my chocolates. Around the holidays, I had tons of orders with just friends and families, businesses. They would buy them for all their employees or for their coworkers or... You know, it really became this kind of um, friends and family company. And Who we called, helped uh, run the business portion of it? So the you know the business portion of it, I primarily ran. Uh, you know, I don't think we ever really turned a profit. It was more of a you know, as long as I basically break even, uh-huh. mainly because every time I did make a little profit, I'd go out and buy another piece of equipment. So. To this day at Grisma, we're actually using things that I bought for the jakery 15 years ago. Or, you reinvested in I yourself. I reinvested, there exactly. There are certain containers that my cooks go, why do we have this container? And I go, don't worry about it. 
but it's, I bought that with my own money yeah, 15 exactly. years ago. Like, Don't you dare break that right, container. Exactly. <laughs> I know it's a shitty piece of plastic, but that has love in it. All right? It has a lot of sentimental value. a lot value. of stories. Um, but... Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, it was just an incredible amount of support. We called it the Jakery, and my parents definitely helped with business stuff. I even remember, you know, they were, they were both attorneys, although my mom's became a, a farmer. Um, you know, I would even be in touch with, like, you know, our my parents, like, accountant or this and that, just to make sure I was flying right right below the radar. Uh, so that you know, I'm not I'm not going too illegal. Although the Jakery did accept credit cards, which I was told was a huge mistake. <laughs> IRS still hasn't come after me though, so well, I think we're okay. That's good. You 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 don't have to worry about them anymore. There's like the IRS doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. the, the, the president has has said that the, it down. the new president has said the IRS doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so I wanna. Before we take a quick break, I want to ask about what the next step was. You're 15 years old. You've worked at a restaurant already in New York. You've started your own business. Did you go to culinary school? Did you go to a more traditional college? Did you just simply start working at a restaurant? What happened next? So after I worked at Chanterelle and I worked, uh, I w- went home to work on chocolate work, uh, I decided I naturally had to go to Paris. So I uh, would go to the chocolate show every year. I made connections at the show. And actually, one of my favorite chocolate companies, Chocolate Weiss, was incredibly generous. They're a small family chocolate company, uh, like similar to Valrona. Um, very similar to Valrona, but smaller, um, and some of their products better. Uh, although I love Valrona, don't worry. And uh, I, they actually set up an internship for me for a month at a chocolate shop in Paris. And I flew out to Paris uh, one summer during high school for a month, set up a place to stay with my French teacher in school. And, and I lived there for a month and worked at a chocolate shop, learned more about chocolate, came back home. And I went to work uh, each summer of high school. Uh, I worked at Gramercy Tavern for two summers and during high school. Um, so three, four months at a time, came back the following summer to work for the, uh, another pastry chef. Uh, so first with Nicholas Morgenstern and then with Nancy Olson, uh, learned an incredible amount from both. It was kind of a really incredible experience to work for two different chefs at one restaurant. It's like, you don't have to relearn the kitchen or the environment, but you get a whole other, like, you know, knowledge base to learn from, which, you know, if anyone has that opportunity, uh, kind of a special one. Um, and then I, I went off, uh, I went upstate and I worked a little bit at a restaurant upstate as the pastry chef, uh, kind of found it a little slow for me considering what I was used to in New York. Uh, and then I decided to go off to a liberal arts college. Uh, I went to Oberlin Ohio for a semester. I thought, what the fuck? There's so much corn growing here, but there's no good restaurants. And I freaked out and went, I got to get back to a kitchen, uh, moved back home, went to NYU for three semesters and started working in catering while I was going to school. So I worked for Danny Meyer's catering company for a while. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm not paying any attention in class. All I do is think about catering. Uh, So after two years in college, I decided, wait a minute, am I really using my time well in terms of learning or am I just kind of following the footsteps of everyone who goes to school? And I thought, you know what, I can always come back and go to college if I want to, if that's for me. But right now, I want to learn how to run a kitchen. I want to learn how to open my own place. Uh, So I left school and I thought, if I really want to learn, I need to learn in the right environment. And I went to work. Uh, I started, uh, I went temporarily to Union Square Cafe. They just asked me to fill in for a few months. So I spent, uh, I don't know, maybe six months or so there um, filling in and kind of holding things down for a little while. Um, Made a lot of great connections. And, you know, at this point, I already worked for two Danny Meyer companies. Uh, And then I went to Boston. Uh, Well, first went to help my mom a little bit with starting up her farm, uh, just a little because she's much better farmer than I am. And then I uh, I went out to Boston to learn bread for a year. 
uh, came back to New York where I met my girlfriend working at uh, Odo um, and learned some, learned some gelato and uh, went back to Boston and uh, was the pastry chef of Striptease and Rebelle uh, and really learned an amazing amount getting to run my own department, getting to run the bread and pastry operations for two restaurants, one of which was a sandwich shop by day. And really get to do our own thing, learn from some amazing chefs working for Tim Maslow and and other chefs that were part of our team. Spent almost two years out there and decided, uh, you know, I either got to get more committed with this restaurant out here or it's time for me to go back home. Uh, And I missed Brooklyn too much. That's where I wanted to live. Um, And I actually said, I'm going to open an ice cream shop. Goodbye, guys. And I moved back to Brooklyn, and as I was working on the plans for an ice cream shop, at this point I had actually been on a road trip across the United States to go to uh, uh, 25 ice cream shops in 10 days. And uh, we did it, and I thought, when I got back, I thought, wow, New York is way too seasonal. Uh, I'd love to open an ice cream shop, but first I felt like I needed um, more of a name behind myself. Uh, so I thought, you know what, let's start with a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't think until now, wait a minute, maybe the other way around would have been a little bit easier. It's something I know a lot about is ice cream and something I know a little less about is just trying to do everything in a restaurant. Um, but I thought, let's have some fun. I'm going to stop you there, and we are going to talk about Gristmill when we come back from this break with Jake Novick Finder on the line. And this one's called Let's Not by Shadowbox. We'll be right back. chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth so when shopping for your ingredients look for the new york state grown and certified seal it lets you know which food is grown right right here in new york state certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard you'll not only be serving local food you'll be supporting local farmers Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to The Line. We're here with Jake Novick Finder. He's the owner and chef of Gris Mill located in Park Slope. Uh, prior to opening that restaurant, he worked at... Uh, for the Union Square Hospitality Group in catering. He worked at Grand Street Tavern and Oto. He worked in Boston. When he was 13, he opened up his own truffle company, and at 12 years old, he worked pastry at uh, a restaurant in Tribeca called Chantrelle that has since been shuttered. So he's 26 years old. He's been cooking for 14 years. Jake, how did you open up Gristmill? Uh, at 26 years old, did you feel like you were, did age play any role in that? Did you feel like you were too young to open up a restaurant or did you feel that, uh, you were ready to do it? Because I I ask you that because 26 on paper seems young, but 14 years of restaurant experience seems an intense amount of time where, I believe anyone would say you'd be ready to do it. People open up restaurants all the time with Lex experience. Does the age mean anything to you? 
I would say no. Uh, you know, it's something I'm conscious of just because I, I you know, I, of course, I know that I'm uh, young to open a restaurant. And there were definitely times during construction where, you know, middle-aged men are like, why the fuck are you bossing me around? You know, like, why are you telling me what to do? And I'm like, look, I work in restaurants. So if I'm the chef, if I'm the boss, I'm telling you what to do. Um, and, you know, I won't be obnoxious, but I want this restaurant done right. Uh, so I'd say there were, you know, there were times where people just really weren't expecting me to be the owner. We're really looking for like, okay, who's the boss right now? And I'd be like, oh, I'll show you who the boss is. Let's get started. Where's your dad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> young, young man, where, where, where is, is your he? dad or mother? Who can we talk to who's in charge here? Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, from a young age, actually, when someone would call and like, you know, the, the home and be like, um, can I speak to someone in charge? And I'd be like, speaking, can I help you? I might be eight, but let's get this conversation going. I don't have much time. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I don't think so. I, I think that I had a lot of training and experience um, in the kitchen. What I didn't have training experience for was construction and managing a construction team. And I ended up kind of managing much of our uh, team. Um, and that was a, a huge challenge, but one I was really excited for. You know, in every kitchen I've worked in, I've kind of tried to learn, you know, especially as I got older, learn as much of the, the what I needed to know as possible and then be like, great, what can I learn about what you're doing over there? What can I learn about what he's doing over there? Uh, how can I absorb what that, you know, maintenance guy is doing so that next time that fridge breaks, I'm the one who steps up and goes, I'll fix the fridge. Yeah, I got this. Shit, what does this part do to this part? Yeah, don't worry about it, guys. I got this. Uh, so, you know, for me, I, I've always just loved I loved Legos at a young age, and I feel like that kind of made my brain work in a certain way where it's like, oh, I love putting pieces of the puzzle together. So opening a restaurant uh, has been a really, really exciting and fun challenge, and I love every day of it, uh, even if it's exhausting. <laughs> We're in the we're in a similar boat. Uh, we're we're both fairly young guys, and we have young restaurants as well. Mine is a lot younger than yours. Uh, for me, an important part of the process has been being able to lean on someone. My brother is my partner. I can trust him. We make every decision together. Who do you look for for mentorship, both in the kitchen and also on the on the business side? And also from the forward-facing perspective, because in New York City, a restaurant is now, for better or for worse, it's more than a restaurant. You have to brand yourself. You have to promote yourself in a specific avenue to differentiate yourself from other restaurants that are literally and figuratively on the same block as you, right? So how do you accomplish all those goals while still being involved in the kitchen? Who do you look to for, uh, for support in those areas? Well, you know, it's definitely a challenge. We've had some front of house managers uh, from the get go that just kind of didn't work out with the team. Um, and, you know, it also was a little bit of a of an obstacle to kind of find that right person. Um, I would say that uh, when we opened the restaurant from the kitchen perspective, uh, Craig Hutch, who's a close friend and was the CDC of our restaurant in Boston, of our of our flagship restaurant, Rebelle, um, he actually was opening his own restaurant. He took a little pause and said, hey, let me give you six months. And he came in and actually Saturday, this past Saturday, was his last shift. Um, and he had really helped me with kind of helping design the menu, but also giving me somebody who I could say, all right, I'm going to step away from the kitchen and go focus on the bar, go focus on the business side, or go focus on something else. And I know I have somebody who I've worked with long enough in the kitchen. 
um, as of the last couple days. Uh, he has moved on as he's refocusing on opening his restaurant in Connecticut. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I now have a team, um, albeit small, but I have a, and we are looking for cooks, but I do have a team, uh, that's, uh, really great and really supports me. And, you know, I've really grown to, you know, learn to trust people more than I have in the past. Um, and, uh, my girlfriend, Maria has really thrown herself, uh, in to be kind of our events marketing director and running the front of house. Um, and, you know, she's, you know, the other half of me and the other half of the restaurant. And then I call in my uncle. He's my mom's closest friend. He's our CFO and primary investor, uh, John. Um, he really helps me run the business side. <clears throat> so I kind of have my whole friends and family dive in. I mean, my mom's always calling, what can I do to help? And she grows a lot of our food up in Rhinebeck. Uh, so I, I have like an in-house farmer. Uh, my dad's uh, Good also... Good connection. Exactly. There. Exactly. And she comes down and maintains all of our plants in the restaurant. My older brother, again, does our music. My younger brother helps with everything from picking up Acme Smoke Fish for me on a Friday morning because I forgot to order it to, you know, running around doing errands. And, you know, my dad is our lawyer for everything, but he's also a partner and an investor and part of the team, uh, as well as John helping run uh, the front of house stuff. But uh, I also just have a lot of friends and family who've really come together to say, hey, I would love to be a consultant one day. Can I use you as my free example? And I go, uh, yeah. Please do so. Please do. Uh, Did, what you I say do free? Yeah. Did you say free Who said and free? restaurant in the exactly. same sentence? Unpaid what? Uh, yeah. Come on in. Uh, so... It sounds like you have a incredible – your restaurant is, is a family. You have yeah. this built-in network that has allowed you to open up a place to utilize your skills in order to present them in a specific way because you can rely on all these other pieces uh, that if you need to shift up and out, someone else can kind of slide in and help you out. It leads me to my next question, which is with Craig leaving yep. the kitchen. Uh, do you think that you're going to be finding yourself really diving back in to specifically focusing on food? And are you a little worried that it will um, take you away from other things that you've been working on? outside of the kitchen? No, I'm actually really, I feel like we've made a really concrete, um, solid uh, formation and structure in the restaurant so that it allows me to, uh, what I'm learning to do is to put more trust into everyone who works for me and who's worked for me since the beginning. You know, we have a lead bartender who, when, when, you know, we back away and give him more responsibility, all I see is him organizing things that weren't organized before. And so I go, wow, okay, so I really just needed to step back and let people uh, own their own uh, area. You know, my cooks, uh, even starting yesterday, just started doing things they never would have done before with organization and helping receiving products and all kinds of things where I go, wait, why weren't you guys doing this the last five months? And they go, we're, we're stepping up. And I go, took you five months? Come on, let's go, guys. And I, I really love them for that. But I actually feel like my team is, is a little smaller, but that kind of um, oddly made us stronger than ever. Uh, I really feel proud of where we're at and who we have. And we kind of shrunk down to the people that were most valuing what we're doing and most caring about what we're doing. I mean, Gristmill, um, as um, a close friend called it, is a modern American restaurant, and it's a modern family restaurant uh, because we really are a family within the restaurant, but then my family and my friends really are involved to a huge capacity. And everything we do from having a wood fire oven that we want to bring people in, warmth, uh, working for Danny Meyer, everything even on a big scale was family, was hospitality. And we try to bring that within the own, the, our own team. Um, but a lot of it comes from me just like saying to cooks, hey, I want 
want you to have more freedom, um, work on this dish. These are the ideas so far. Uh, br- cook it for me. Let's taste it. Let's talk together. Let's get everyone's opinion because everyone's opinion matters. And to me, you know, the worst thing you can do is, is tell someone, shut up, your opinion doesn't matter because their opinion might be a whole lot closer to the guest reaction than your own. It's, it's easy to get caught up. So I'm actually, you know, with, with less help in a way, more excited to kind of um, spread myself, but at the same time, give everybody a little bit more responsibility. I want to ask about Gramercy and Danny Meyer and Union Square Hospitality Group. They are able to accomplish pretty tremendous things based on their size and based on the vision and leadership that the top managerial people there have and that Danny has put into effect and that trickles down to all the restaurants. People listening that have small businesses, you and I, how do we put those into effect? How do beyond the, you explained all the wonderful ethical sourcing that you do over 90% of your product comes locally besides the food front. How do we continue uh, to do things responsibly and ethically from a perspective of being a small business owner within our communities? How do you do that? I know that you just recently opened and that, you know, the first six months are usually, we got to get the menu right, but how do you how do now moving into your hopefully your second and your third and your fourth year? What are your kind of plans for reemphasizing Gristmill as a true family neighborhood restaurant, and what does that mean for your guests and also for your staff? I mean, I think that it really comes down to treating everybody like family, but taking that really wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, one thing that they stress more than any other restaurant in the Danny Meyer world is it's not just your coworker. It's not just the guest. It's the guy who delivers linens. It's the guy who delivers your farm goods. It's the company that comes out to refer- fix your refrigerator. And once you build that atmosphere where your cooks know that when the fridge guy walks in, you offer him a non-alcoholic drink when he walks in and maybe something a little stronger when he walks out, uh, that it starts to create this culture whereby you really feel, wow, this is about bringing together people with the strongest personalities first and their ability and their skills second. Um, yes, ability and skill is important, but it's, you can teach anybody to do anything. Um, it's really about having the people that are truly warm, truly hospitable. You know, I'm, I'm flattered when uh, we, we've had guests come in and, and talk about how different our service is than the rest of Brooklyn. And they're not saying it's stuffy. They're not saying it's even the most advanced uh, wine knowledge uh, in Brooklyn. They're saying that they feel like this is really their other home. And we have more regulars than I could have possibly expected. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to get busier every day. You know, weekends are busy, weekdays are slow, and we're trying to get there. Uh, but, you know, we really feel like building this culture, building the stories, uh, I really try to let my staff have their own projects. You know, the bar is doing so many things right now, and I don't drink alcohol myself. I just, my body doesn't enjoy it. And uh, so getting as involved as I am with the bar program was a challenge, and now I love it. And we make shrubs in-house. We're making our own bitters, our own vermouths. Uh, Everything we do infusion-wise is in-house. And so with all these projects, each bartender has his own. You know, one bartender's working on bitters, one bartender's working on vermouths, one bartender's working on shrubs. And it's kind of the same in the kitchen. They have their own pickle program, their own fermented dairy or fermented bread starter. A lot of the cooks have their own bread starters. So each everybody having their own little 
almost like food plant to take care of really seems to work in terms of building this family environment where, you know, someone might say, hey, can you take care of something with one of my bitters on my day off? But it becomes really uh, like family. It's like, hey, can you take care of my guinea pig while I go away for the weekend? Uh, the guinea pig might be a bread starter. But it starts to build that, that eco-culture where everybody's proud of what the project they're working on is, and it doesn't become this competitive environment. And sometimes we're working on stuff that we don't even have a plan for yet. But we got in some really cool radishes, and why wouldn't we ferment them? This is, uh, I'll get you out of here on this last question. At this rate, on your 40th birthday, you'll have been in restaurants for several decades. So let's look to the future now that we've uh, talked so much about your past and how you got here and all the jobs along the way. I'm curious, where do you see yourself at, at age 40? And what does, that, what does that look like in terms of uh, gristmill? you personally, and uh, your hopes for your future uh, food endeavors? Well, I would say my goal, my dream, uh, what I love is, you know, I don't believe in having gristmill 2, gristmill 3, gristmill 4, or even putting gristmills all over the world. Uh, I believe in, you know, maintaining a certain amount of control. And so I would love to open more and more food businesses in Brooklyn, whether it be in Park Slope or other neighborhoods of Brooklyn that are close enough that I can, you know, be at them. Um, But having, uh, you know, an ice cream shop under the same brand and ideology of gristmill from a sustainability, from a farm practice, from a culture and family, um, having maybe a pasta shop, a sandwich shop, and having all the businesses really uh, coincide. You know, maybe we have a bread bakery that also makes bread for the restaurant and the sandwich shop, and then we have an ice cream shop that does the ice cream at gristmill. You know, at gristmill now, we make our own bread. We make our own ice cream, our own sorbet. I mean, everything is from the rawest form we possibly can. Um, and so, you know, to start, we're really excited for Christmas and New Year's and then the New Year. And then after that, uh, the opening for breakfast. Um, and the idea being if we can kind of use Gristmill as a testing site for all of these things, um, whether it be, you know, opening as a coffee shop, opening as sort of an ice cream shop by day, then when I'm 40, we have the ice cream shop, we have the coffee shop, we have the bread bakery, but they're all separated from each other. Um, you know, at a certain point, we don't have enough space on our little wooden table to make enough bread at Gristmill. But my goal in the next year is to be selling our bread um, to people that, whether it's pre-order, just want to come in and buy a loaf to make really delicious sandwiches for their kids that week, um, to buy pints of ice cream because we make ice cream in-house, but to have, when I'm 40, each of them be their own business and each of them support each other and have strong managers that run each location so that I can you know, step back and go, oh, I'm going to just pop into the ice cream shop today and make some ice cream, and then tomorrow I'm going to go run Expo at the restaurant. Uh, so I think that's, that's my dream, that's my hope, and that's my love for Gristmill. Jake, thanks so much for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to Heritage Radio Network and consider making a donation to keep us going. Appreciate you all tuning in for this episode of The Line. Join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thank you, Eli. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 